So continuing on, we have to follow the Lord, and he tells us to pray for everybody, and then he gives us specific things to pray for. Paul is speaking for the Lord. Verse 2, we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So he's talking to the Christian. If leaders were to pray for them, that they'll be have wisdom. He's talking about people not even saved, but they'll understand civil government and maintain order. And if you have peace in a society, the gospel spread better, and the Christian can accomplish a lot more than a lot of conflict and things going on and wars and so forth, okay? So we prayed for kings and those in government power. So in our government, we don't have a king. We have an executive branch, we have a judicial, and we have Congress. And they three act as our king. We don't have a, a monarch, a dictator, so it's not tied up in one person. So we have to pray for our leaders that way, that they can have peace in the land and maintain order, that there'll be no anarchy, will not prevail, and that people can live basically peaceful in a society where they can have good economy and they can increase and support themselves and people can live that way. That's what God intends, okay? They're to advance in harmony with each other. Even the world can do that. The world loves its own. And do away with outward evil. It would not be tolerated. God expected governments to execute criminals. Criminals in society should be put to death if they are murderers and kidnappers. We'll see they are an avenger of God. He said, they're my ministers. It doesn't mean they're saved. It means he wants government in any society to make sure it's not anarchy. And those who will outwardly be wicked and cruel, he wanted them put to death. And it's the government's job to do that. What not the Christian's job? And you hear the people quote scripture, turn the other cheek. They're stupid people. He ain't talking about the world. He's talking about Christians. We're not to retaliate. But government is an avenger of evil, and it's supposed to retaliate. It's supposed to avenge God and punish evildoers. That's what Paul said. They don't bear the sword in vain. It was the Roman sword was used to put to death, and they maintained order. Don't matter how wicked they were in other ways. Outwardly, you didn't have Rome, a bunch of gangs running around killing and robbing people. The Roman soldier would put them to death or crucify them or whatever was needed to maintain order. And that's what we were told to obey the police force and the government that tries to maintain order. The individual is no Christian, don't matter. But if he's doing that, God is pleased with that because the people can live in a basic peaceful nation. And basically that's what God wants until the nation is so wicked he has to punish them. So we can give the gospel more easily when there's not war going on, when there's not conflict, when there's not diseases and stuff wiping out millions of people. People sometimes might listen under gross activities but most, they will consider things better when they have time and money and opportunity, then they'll listen to something. When they're having so many troubles, they're not worried about God or anybody else. They worry about themselves. They won't consider certain things. So the Christian is to be a light 
in godliness and not a troublemaker or a criminal. Christians should not be protesting. Now, a lot of people, they have a good cause, but the Bible warned them, they owe you not to go with the mob. You're to be peaceful and quiet. He expected a Christian to be praying than out there demonstrating. So a lot of the things we do are not necessarily Christian. We're called a Christian nation. There is no Christian nation. Our nation is run by the devil, just like most nations, and God intervenes. The Christian nation is the body of Christ. There's only one Christian nation. We are the spiritual Israel. The kingdom of God is within us. Uh So there is no what you call Christian. Oh, they will teach Christian principles, but in their heart, they don't live by them. So we're not to go with a rioting crowd. We're not to protest. We're not to go down the street screaming at policemen and all that. God said, you honored them, and you'll bring wrath upon yourself if you don't. Didn't say whether they were good or bad. He did not expect Christians. He said, you leave the world to itself. Paul said, God judges. He said, we're concerned with the body of Christ. He didn't get into political things like so many professing Christians do. They're more interested in patriotism and the government than they are in their own churches being taught false doctrine. Where do you think they're going? They may be good citizens, but if they allow false teaching in their gatherings, they're going to hell just like the wicked people do. So we need to get our priorities straight. He mainly expected prayer, but these people don't know how to pray, so they try to do things themselves and act in the flesh, and they're not led of the Spirit. They're led by the carnal nature, and the devil inspires them. I'll get trouble from those statements. Okay, let's go on. Verse 3 and 4. Now, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What's good and acceptable? That we live quiet and godly lives in a peaceful area where people can prosper, make money, and bear fruit, and take care of their families, and pay their taxes. God intends for that. And he said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Well, here in God our Savior, it could be referring to the Father or to the Son. They're both in the New Testament and Old are called our Savior, okay? The Godhead, the One. And verse 4, who, who God our Savior, desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that blows the theory of these predestination and election people who pervert Scripture. I tell you, God has determined a million years ago who's going to go to heaven and hell before they're burned. That is a monster. That is not Scripture. A demon is propagating that kind of doctrine because they don't rightly handle the Word of God. Okay, And even if God and he desires to look into the future and he knows everybody's choices, he does not interfere with them. He may see what they do. He does not interfere, or he could not rightly judge them. If they're forced to do something and they have no control over it, there can be no judgments. It would be unjust of God to do this. See, people don't know the nature of God. They think he can do it. Well, God can harden whom he will, and so that's true, but not before they've sinned. See, they think, oh, it's beforehand. Now, I know he said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He's talking about the line. And you know, I'm talking about the individual. You study that scripture, he's talking about the descendants that he chose Jacob's house and line over Esau. And it's his right to do that with anybody, to call any prophet or any person 
and give them ministries. Uh, he don't have to answer nobody. So that's what he does. But he never moves against a person who's innocent, who hasn't done anything. He's not going to do that. It's not his nature. He hardened Pharaoh after warning him several times. After five or six times and 40 years being king, he finally dealt with King Saul and the spirit of the Lord left him. And the Bible says he was anointed when he became a king. The spirit anointed him. And then it said the spirit of Jehovah departed from him and an evil spirit from the Lord came to him. That was his punishment. He lost all spirituality. There was no grace for him. No grace anymore. He tested God too much, okay? And kept failing. So God wishes peacefulness outwardly with people in society and community, that people can live that way and make a living. Crenimals are to be punished and good citizens are to be honored. They can give, be given tax breaks. They've been given other, government can decide that. Our government decided, it still does, but it'll probably stop it eventually. But Christians and churches could get tax deductions. They, they maintain that religious people are good for society because they basically try to do good in society. So we reward them. They give them, and they have the right to do that. But they're to punish evildoers, okay? So God, our Savior, delights in good civil government, and he wants order in these things. And they can do it, even though the devil has great influence over the nations, he doesn't have absolute power. People don't have to obey him. When he got Adam and Eve to sin, he thought they would join with him. They just became another independent being. So he failed. He thought he would get him an army, and he'd get the humans to... But they, most people serve the devil out of ignorance. They don't even know who he is or believe in him. He works best now by deception. He don't come and say, I'm the devil, serve me. He propagates false religion and false Christianity. He comes as an angel of truth, but he's a liar and a deceiver, okay? So scripture refutes all damnable teachings of predestination that run to the, they take three or four scriptures and they make a foundation. Well, God, they'll say, is sovereign and he can do what he pleases. No, he can't. He sets a nature of who he is, and he cannot be arbitrary or whimsical. He's set and fixed, and he said, I'm the Lord that changes not. And he told Moses, I'm loving kindness and faithful and long-suffering, but by no means clearing the guilty. There ain't repentance and change, and he punishes. But his initial nature is, I wish everybody would be saved and come to the Lord. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He finds pleasure in righteousness and holiness. That's what he finds pleasure in. Okay. And so we see going back to King Saul, he was once an anointed king, but he was rejected after God kept testing him, and he was not loyal to the Lord several times. And in his hatred and the spirit motivating, uh, when the high priest in another town gave David and his followers who were fleeing from Saul, they gave them holy bread to eat. He allowed him to eat that. Well, he thought he was on an errand for Saul. So he didn't see nothing wrong. When Saul found out, he sent and had 80 priests killed and all of that family. You're talking about a couple hundred people. And from that time on, you see no mercy or grace from God. He fixed himself and God decided that's it. Uh-huh. 
And so we know that what God did. A demon motivated him, and he was responsible for this. So we are seeing God is not capricious. He's not whimsical. He sat in his nature. He's loving kindness and patient. He don't change with nations or individuals. He has standards, Bible. So he doesn't look down and say, oh, I don't like this person. I think I'll send him to hell. These people talk, and if they analyze what they're saying, they've made God a monster worse than the devil. He cannot talk out of both sides of his mouth. He maintains holiness and justice, and he can show grace and mercy. He can do those together. As Jesus, he said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to save mankind. That benevolence, goodwill. But in the same chapter, it says that those who do not believe in Christ, when they've heard the gospel, and they refuse it, he said the wrath of God remains on them. Wrath is God's anger and displeasure against the sinner. And people say, well, he loves the sinner, but not their sin. They pervert scripture. When a person's violent and keeps rejecting, Psalm says he hates the wicked, violent man's soul. See, But there's love that they talk about. They think it's some kind of mood and affection. God's love is goodwill and desires his enemies to repent. But he hates the sin and what they're doing, and he can despise their soul. The Bible says at times he despises them, and five times it's recorded of God laughing. And three times he's mocking the wicked and their terror when they're ready to die. He's not showing mercy to them, and he's the same God. He said, I'm the Lord that changes not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus taught more on hell lake of fire than anybody did. He should have known. He created it, okay? So we see that his wrath and anger remain on the center. He isn't changed. He finds it. He's the holy God, and he demands holiness. Yet he's long-suffering and patient. These people aren't in hell a lot earlier than he could send them. He gives them time to repent, consider things. And a lot of times with most people, he lets them live their life out, wicked or not. He can intervene and judge if he sees fit for his own reason. And that's what Paul meant. Those without, God judges. It's not our problem to evaluate and judge them. We're dealing with the body of Christ, he was saying. That's our business, okay? So God wishes people to have consideration. And it said he wishes all to be saved through Jesus Christ. That's why he sent him. Most will not be saved, okay? And as we go to the scripture often, and we still need to remember it, there is no irresistible grace. There is no predestination of the individual. He's talking about the church. It says, hell shall not prevail against the church. Well, at the most wicked time, there may be three people left. That's the church. Will not prevail against a true Christian that's following the Lord but he can stop following the Lord. But God's going to have a people from everywhere because they're going to be those who turn to the Lord. And we need to remember and stop people reading stuff that's not in the scripture. So the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 18, the believe here too not only means believe who Jesus, it means to follow him. People need to understand that. Many people say, I believe in God, and they think that makes them good. The devils believe that, okay? He who believes in him, Christ, he is not condemned. He will not judge him, okay? 
He's been convicted of his sin. His sins have been forgiven. But he said, he who does not believe or obey Christ is condemned already. He's already under God's wrath. So when people say, oh, well, God doesn't come to condemn you, he don't have to. You're already condemned. Judgment's already been passed on your wicked nature, your evil, your self-seeking. So they think it means, oh, he's not looking for, no, if you're not serving the Lord, you're condemned. He doesn't have to go through that again. He don't have to have a special session with you. You're corrupt and wicked. And you'll stay in that state if you don't repent and turn to the Lord, okay? It says, because he has not believed in the name of the Lord, uh, the Son of God. He sent him, and he's our righteousness, and he changes us. Outside of him, they have nothing. For everyone, this is the condemnation, it means they're already condemned, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So he's talking about when Christ is coming. Under the law, you still had prophets, and you had your conscience. So you had light to some degree, okay? And you could have responded if you lived under that system, okay? But he's telling us something about human nature, which everybody ought to know. And men love darkness rather than light. They love sin rather than truth. And they prove it, as he says, because their works are evil. And that's what James was saying. If you have no righteous works, you're evil. You have no faith. Alexander Smith did evil works. He didn't have the Lord no more. He expected good works, fruitfulness, and obedience from the Christian. And he wouldn't have expected it if they couldn't do it. Okay, And so for everyone practicing evil hates the truth and does not come to the light because his deeds would be reproved or exposed, okay? But he who does the truth, he's not talking about the person that hasn't got saved yet. This applies to people under the old covenant. They practice the truth they've been given. They'll come to the light. They'll confess their sins. They'll sacrifice. Do do what's necessary to make right and repentance. He says their deeds will be shown that they're from God, that he's helping them. So, but he's saying man's nature as a whole, but it doesn't say he has to not come to the light. He holds them responsible. Under what he's given, he's capable. Cain was capable of listening to God and not going after his brother. He warned him. He said, subdue it, overcome it. And he wouldn't have said that to Cain if Cain couldn't have done it. But Cain listened to the murdering spirit, and he killed his brother. He was responsible for what uh, he had done, okay? But he didn't have to do it. So under the old and new, man has responsibilities, and God delighted in the Old Testament. He said that they turn and repent. No, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked but they'll seek God and turn to his help and grace. So people, because they have a fallen nation, don't mean they're damned. They're damned when they follow their wickedness continually and don't seek God's grace and help to live right. And then they enjoy their sins. That's why they're damned. God does not basically judge people because they're born with a sinful nature. It's what they do, and that's why it gives them time to follow their conscience, to obey the law, to come to Christ, whatever dispensation they're under. So he's not holding. He usually does not judge 
Even under the law, if you were wicked in your heart, you were basically not judged. It was when you outwardly did something. Where in Christianity, God will judge us according to our heart and spirit and what we meditate on. Them, he winked at their ignorance. They may have wanted to do certain things, but they knew they'd be punished, so it restrained them because the law was made for wicked people with a wicked nature. And he expected them to do that, and they did. And so they were called righteous according to the law. They confessed their sins, they paid penalties, they had sacrifice, they had the priests pray, and they were right with the Lord. But their nature had not changed. They still had to deal with the old nature, and their spirit and conscience were not totally clear. They always have a remembrance. And every year the high priest had to offer blood for this. But on the new covenant, he cleanses the spirit. He dwells with the believer in a way he didn't under the old covenant. And that's again why God said, the least in the kingdom of God, the new kingdom, is greater than anybody. in the old. Even uh, John the Baptist was considered one of the greatest. So the least Christian has been saved, he has a better standing and opportunity because Christ dwells in him in a different way. He did not dwell in those in the old covenant. He came upon them. The Spirit came upon them. But when the Spirit came upon Jesus, it remained. It didn't lift. It remained for the rest of his life, okay? Because we are under a better covenant. So we see that. God delights in judgment against evil. The sinner, he would rather not judge him. He'd rather show mercy. But he does delight in holiness and righteousness, and he despises sin, and he's going to deal with it, okay? So that's what he wants, people to live righteously in Christ Jesus. He finds no intrinsic value in punishing the wicked. It means he just don't like doing it. They're wicked. And he doesn't get any pleasure out of punishing them, but he gets pleasure in righteousness and holiness. So therefore, it draws that out of him. The wrath of God was never displayed. The angels never saw God's anger or wrath until Satan, as Lucifer, rebelled. Then they saw something they'd never saw before. He never exercised, because it was never needed, okay? As we go back to Scripture in Romans 2, He talked about here briefly in Romans chapter 2. He's talking to the Jew who thinks he's better than a Gentile, and he's given a message to them. And even the converted Jew was to consider these things. They thought they were a little better and had a better standing, but they didn't to those who were in Christ. And they looked down on the Gentiles, a lot of of these people. And what does verse 2? Three says, and do you think, oh man, it could be translated because he's talking to the Jew. Do you think you who judge, they were looking down with contempt on Gentiles as terrible sinners, that those practicing such things, that if you do the same thing, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Well, it's rhetorical. You're not going to. So you may know more of the law and you've been given more privileges, but you could be punished more if you do what you see the wicked Gentiles are doing, you're no better than them. See, they thought they were privileged and special. They weren't because they weren't obedient and faithful, okay? And he says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? God put up a lot with the Jews. 
and he finally disinherited them as a whole and destroyed their system and everything about them. Only a remnant was saved because uh-huh. they had repeatedly for generations kept rebelling and became stiff-necked against him. They didn't learn their lesson. They thought they were privileged and they could live like they wanted to. They found out that it don't work that day. But notice what he says. Don't you know it's the goodness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance? He hasn't judged you because it's not that you're special. He's being long-suffering once you acknowledge your sin and repent rather than have to judge you. They were misinterpreted and that they could get away with these things because they were under the covenant and God was sort of not paying attention. The Gentiles were just dogs and sinners, but we're better than them even though we fail and we practice sin. Well, he told them they were wrong, okay? But he said what? Uh But in accordance with your hardness and your stubbornness, your stubborn spirit, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the judgment of God, the right. He's saying, you ain't losing. The longer you take in that state and the longer God gives you grace, you'll be punished for it. That's what he means, storing up. He's going to overlook this. So it's better, again, not to spurn grace. And that's why Peter could say, it's better that you've never been saved, that you backslide, because God's going to hold you to a higher standard and there's going to be greater punishment because of that. So that's what he was warning the arrogant Jews who thought they were so special and who were not obeying the Lord. But he is slow to wrath and punishment. But after his grace and warnings has spurred so much, he can be quick to act once he decides to. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall from heaven as lightning. Once God ran this test, and we don't know how long it went, and one third of the angels went with the devil, Lucifer, he instantly, in a split second, they were cast out of heaven and everything holy in them was removed and they became demons. That's how quickly it happened. But he was long-suffering and patient. He's done that with everybody. But then there's a time it comes to an end and he will act, okay? It's funny, people need to remember that these things were written for Christians not to lust after evil things. They're lessons and examples. He had tested them. He said, we don't know if it was literal because it was a symbol. Ten mean a complete number, almost like seven. And it was said he tested Israel ten times and they failed. Uh huh. And the last time he told them to go in, sent the witnesses and seek out the land, and then we're going to move in and take it over. And all the people murmuring, these are giants in the land. Uh, they'll kill our children, and we don't want to go. And they whined, and only Caleb and Joshua gave a good witness. The other 10 spies that were sent forth didn't, and God killed them. And he told the people, and that's after he told the people what will happen. He said, then you'll not go into the land. You know, the next day they changed their mind. They came back and said, we're ready to go. And Moses said, don't go. He said, because God isn't in it. See, they thought he would just change his mind and be gracious. He had tested them 10 times. God sometimes says, that's enough. And he told them, he says, these children you were worried about, every one of them from 20 under, they will go. 
and he'll take 40 years for you to wander, you adults, and you're going to die because you're not going in. And that's what he did. And then he immediately struck dead the 10 evil, he called them evil witnesses, spies, because they discouraged the people. They had been tested enough to trust God, and they still kept rebelling. They were stiff-necked. They saw greater miracles than anybody's seen nationally, outwardly, and and yet they still, they didn't get into the promised land. Now, they may have repented during those 40 years and made it to heaven, but the symbol was to go in to the high end of milk and honey, the promised land, they were fused. It was a symbol, too, of heaven, okay? So 40 years, he let them wander around until they died off, and he still took care of them. The shoes didn't wear out. (laughs) He intervened at times because he has to look out for the ones that are 20 and under, the children and the babies. And then in 40 years, the oldest, the 20 years old, would be 60 years old. So he'd have an adult generation, but they missed it by one day. They missed it. And then they wanted to change their mind and obey, and he said, ah, see, enough's enough. When God shut the door on the ark, that was it. Grace had shut the door, and that's it. And people need to remember that. When people in hell, the door of grace has been shut for eternity. Okay? And one more example, back to Saul. After he rebelled and killed the priest and did other things that God didn't like, Samuel kept praying for him. Samuel was an intercessor. In Isaiah, Ezekiel, it said the two greatest God considered at the time, the two greatest intercessors was Moses and Samuel. If anybody could reach him, they would do it. But he told Samuel, Samuel kept praying because he'd prayed before and God showed mercy and forgave Saul. But this time the Lord spoke to him while he's praying. And he said, how long will you pray for Saul seeing that I have rejected him? See, that was the time for intercession to stop. God made it very plain that I'm not listening. I'm not listening anymore. Now go and anoint someone else, you know, the son of Jesse. But God cut Saul off from grace then. And there was no hope for Saul. But he tested God too much. And of course, when he killed the the priest and everything, God's determination was, that's it. No more mercy on this king. Okay? And so we see that he stopped praying. And there was a time when Israel was so wicked, God said, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, they stood and prayed with their hands up. He said, I won't listen. So he was saying, if anybody could reach me, it would be Moses and Samuel. But they're so wicked, nobody's going to intercede and move me. I'm going to reward them double for their wickedness. And that's what he did. Often destroyed whole generations and took up the next generation. Okay. And so verse 5 says, after he tells us God wants everybody to get saved, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here he doesn't say the Son of God, because Christ represents both sides. He still has his earthly body in heaven. He still acts as an intercessor until he comes as a king. He's still interceding for the body of Christ And I'm sure he could intercede for people in the world to bring them to conviction, and then they can decide what they want. So he's acting now. He's standing 
Though he say when he did everything, he's seated at the right hand of God. But when it depicts him as the priest, he's standing because he's still working. See, when he came as the Savior and sacrifice and Redeemer, he finished so he could sit down. His work was done. But his work is not done as the intercessor. He intercedes as the man, and then he intercedes as Christ, the divine God. He represents both, and that's what he's doing, okay? So he always desires good and repentance for sinners until they harden themselves too much or blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and then he stops messing with them. Or they attack the messengers and cause problems like Alexander did. So he later sent evil spirits and punishments on those who insist on resisting and despising the Holy Spirit of grace. He's called the Spirit of grace. No one can be saved without the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of grace is the Lord himself. He does all of this work as the Godhead, okay? He was told, Saul was told, even if God looked into the future and saw events, he did not act on them. He acted on what people did in their present life. And we can prove that by one scripture. He foretold David becoming king and all of this years and years before, the coming out of Bethlehem and Judah. Uh -huh. But it was told about Saul when he spoke about him. He told him, he said, if you had been faithful, the prophet had told him, if you had been faithful to God, he would have established your house forever. Saul's house and kingdom would have gone on. And God could have worked it around and brought David in anyway because he married his daughter and he could have kept both houses going. It wouldn't have interfered. But he cut his house off. After four generations, his family, both of them disappeared. It was David then that God was dealing with. And his wife, who mocked David when he was dancing before the Lord, she was very arrogant and proud. She was Saul's daughter. And she mocked him and said something to him. She should have kept her mouth shut. And David said, I'll proclaim myself nude before the Lord if it pleases him. So he did not like what she said. And the scripture says she never bore a child because David never slept with her again. And the house of Saul was cut off from the royalty. Uh -huh. But she brought it on herself. She run her mouth at the wrong time. Okay. She was still defending her wicked father, okay? So he would have established his house forever. So God replaced him with David. It doesn't matter what God knows of the future. He deals with people in the present, and their acts determine uh, what he sees in the future. Of course, we're not even told to get into that. It's beyond our comprehension. But he's fair and just, and he deals with people in the present state. He is the eternal God of the present. He doesn't live in the past or the future. He lives now. And that's how the Bible presents him, okay? So he never calls people to good or evil before they're ever born. That's their choice. Their actions move God to respond accordingly. But he desires that everyone, now he's either a liar, he means what he says, he means every person ever lived. Stalin, Mao, Hitler, he would have desired in the beginning when they were children and teenagers that they would come to the Lord. That would have been his desire, okay? Don't matter what he saw 
or what was going to happen. So that's what moves God, is their actions. For death is sin and wickedness, and it cuts off forever from grace, and it's final. So therefore, he does not find no pleasure in a wicked person dying because there's no more hope for him. As long as they live and abide by certain principles, he can show mercy and grace. But in his holiness and justice, he has to stop it. He cannot insult his own nature. He prefer one attribute that's spoken of God in the Bible more than anything else is his holiness. The love of God is spoken forth. His holiness and goodness and justice is emphasized more than the love of God. See, because that's who he is. His love is expended, expanded to people. But in his very nature, without people, he is righteous and holy, always has been. And he always will be. Okay, So we have to remember that. Let's go ahead and close here. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us practical application. Help us to recognize false teaching and misguided people and not to fall into their foolishness. In Jesus' name, amen.